Welcome to Season 2 of Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Our special Halloween episode and Trey and I are very excited about this episode where we've decided to talk to two experts on Dracula and Frankenstein. Um, so for myself, I had never read either of these books and to prepare for the podcast, I ended up listening to the audiobook Frankenstein and I loved it. And I am halfway through Dracula. Dracula has been a little bit challenging for me. It's a lot, it's harder to follow. Um, it's they're both extremely well written. I've been very surprised, and uh, but Dracula is super scary. I'm I'm like halfway through. I'm in the middle of chapter thirteen, and we may have some spoilers on this episode. <laughs> Just uh, t- heads up if you haven't read them yet. But uh, I I'm anxiously getting through Dracula. I have a, had a hard time putting it down today because uh, uh, Lucy just died. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? And they're talking about cutting her heart out or something. So I'm in this uh, real uh, cliffhanger moment right now. So, um, but I'm excited to introduce well, Dax and Melissa. And Trey, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that I, I haven't even read Dracula yet. So I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um, but believe it or not, I didn't read Frankenstein until graduate school, if you can believe that. And well, I know I'm it's, 52, it's, and I had just read it. <laughs> that, you're ahead of okay. me. That's okay. Well, I mean, I had I had heard of, you know, of course, we all know that Albert Einstein was a genius scientist. I just didn't realize that his brother Frank was such a monster. Oh, God, <laughs> Trey. <laughs> There's your dad bad, your bad dad joke there. Been yeah, I've, I've I've got one more. I just have to get out of the way because, um, you know, I have I have seen the the Bram Stoker uh, the bomb Stoker um, film that was made some years ago. I I watched that in graduate school too, but um, I haven't read the book yet. But I, but I did hear that Dracula sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, I, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> You've been following I, that that TikTok channel of dad jokes with the guys oh, sitting on the pier there, haven't you? Yeah, <laughs> my husband actually watches that. <laughs> oh, this is great. Uh, I've never watched either films. I've never watched Frankenstein or Dracula. And I, I presume that reading both of the books, I'm not going to like the movies very well, which is your typical, uh, you know, the books are always better than the movie, but maybe maybe you guys can give some better recommendations. Um, so we're going to start off. I would like you both to tell your stories and how you got introduced to these monsters and what sparked your interest to dive deeper into their stories. I'm going to start with Melissa. I'd like you to give us some background on yourself with this, and then also on Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, and maybe why there's two versions of the story. Sure. Um, Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be talking with you all today. Um, Well, similarly, I did not read um, Frankenstein or Dracula in high school um, or even in college. Um, I did. uh, I was you know, into the, into the goth scene. And so I did dress in black and go see Bram Bram Stoker's Dracula in the theater and was very excited about that big Winona writer and Keanu Reeves fan, but, um, you know, but hadn't read, read the books. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, receiving a teaching fellowship at Rutgers uh, University in New Jersey. And in that fellowship, I was able to create um, writing classes for freshmen. And the director of the writing program there wanted us to uh, construct writing courses that were like literature courses. So we could put it all around a theme. So it wasn't your typical uh, English 101 where you would work straight out of a, you know, just one textbook. We would do a theme. And so 
uh, one of the themes that I did one fall was um, it, the grotesque in literature and art. And so we looked at Frankenstein and Dracula and um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, and then a couple of um, Edgar Allan Poe stories as well. So, uh, you know, which is fun, you know, the great fall theme. So that was my introduction, you know, um, reading it before I uh, taught, <laughs> taught it to a bunch of freshmen while I was in grad school. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you know about Mary Shelley and um, why there are two versions of this story. Yes. Well, so the two versions, um, you have the, um, the 1818 version and the 1831 version. Um, the letters are different. You know, I think maybe we're going to talk a little bit later about how this is um, it's an epistolary novel, and that's the main way that um, Shelley drives the story, drives the narrative. Um, and so a number of the changes that are made in those two editions are, um, are through those letters. Um, there's a guy named Edward F. James who has, a, who has a blog who lists these out very carefully. And there's also a lot of kind of argument about why the changes were made, whether they were just made you know, to improve the story, because we also know that the, the impetus for the story was this um, kind of dare or, or contest to, to write ghost stories from Lord Byron, from this group, um, group of friends who are all writing. And Mary Shelley, along with her husband and Lord Byron, um, created this story. And she notoriously was just um, not quite sure of her ability to come up with a story. And she was you know, very stressed every night when they would talk about their progress with the story. She never had anything to contribute. She said that she claimed that she always gave kind of a mortified no, that she didn't, ha didn't have anything to share yet. And then she came up with a story very quickly, um, kind of based on a dream one evening. Um, and, and so the result, the early version, the um, the 1818 edition is that story as, you know, it was developed initially. So years later, you know, 1831, um, the, a lot of people say that it has a lot to do with the difficulty or, you know, the tragedy is actually that happened in her life. Um, and I just, is it okay if I just read um, yeah. somebody's kind of synopsis of it? Um, it's, this is from Anne Miller. Um, she reckons that uh, Mary Shelley's philosophical views changed radically, primarily as a result of the pessimism created by her own personal circumstances and the deaths of those close to her. Um, you know, she had uh, she had met Percy Shelley very early when she was sixteen, um, and they actually didn't get married right away because. Percy was already married, and uh, it wasn't until after his wife committed suicide that um, that they were able to marry. And then, you know, she had a daughter, and then she had another child, and um, you know, and both of these children died. And then she suffered a nervous breakdown, and uh, and then she had a miscarriage, and then Percy Shelley drowned. <laughs> so, right, so that all of that happened. Um, you know, between the 1818 version and the 1831 version. So I imagine much like if you pick up a, a book that you read, you know, 13 years ago, you might feel a little bit differently, um, you know, about it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. She had such a tragic life. That's interesting. The version I read was the newer one. I didn't even realize there was an original uh, until I was almost finished reading. <laughs> now I want to go back and read the first version and compare the two. Um, could you tell our listeners what an epistolary novel is? Yeah, um, it is my favorite kind of novel. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a novel in which, well, it, you know, we read St. Paul's epistles, they're letters. And so an epistolary novel is what we refer to as a story through which the narrative is, delivered to the reader via reading somebody else's letters or journals. And 
it's a really, I mean, it's really popular in Victorian literature um, because it's almost this kind of voyeuristic way of receiving a story. Um, and so I don't know if you've ever maybe taken a, um, you know, a history of the novel class. Um, this is always a really, um, it's, a, it's a shift in the way novels were constructed. And it's just so much fun, you know, because it's, a, it's an easy way for the author to shift perspectives. Mm -hmm. So without, I guess maybe without the work of, you know, doing an omniscient, limited, you know, narrator. So for a while, it, you know, when you first start reading um, Frankenstein, you are reading Victor Frankenstein's um, letters and, uh, and throughout, you go back and forth his letters um, to his to his sister, and also, I mean, I'll let Dax talk about this, but um, the uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula is also a pistolary. Trade. What we're talking about the yeah, while we're talking about the various versions, Melissa, I'm I'm wondering if if you're familiar with the lost ending of Frankenstein. Um, I actually happen to have a, a copy of it right here in front of me. Um, so, yeah, this this was lost for a long time. It's just now recently been uncovered thanks to the work of, um, I forget who, but I'll just read it to you. It says, as he drifted away, I could just make out his final words. It's okay if you just call me Frankenstein instead of Frankenstein's monster. I really don't mind the end. Just great scholarship there. <laughs> whoever pulled that together <laughs> but that that is something that uh you know um frankenstein is so widely read um especially in high school anymore and it's i find it fascinating dax i'd be interested to know when you first read it or if you've even read it yet um i, I don't know if uh there was just a period of time where <clears throat> it was sort of not in the classroom and, and now i feel like it's it's in a lot of high school classrooms but as a result um it's likely that it's probably taught poorly um, because it's, and, and maybe I'm just making a, an assumption there, but um, I do know uh, in my own experience of teaching Frankenstein, um, there are some, some places where if the students just happen to venture online and start reading things that they find on the internet, they'll bring certain things to the classroom that I feel like oftentimes um, don't make for a very good reading of the story. And and I, I can give you my opinion on that, but I just wonder if, um, as someone who has taught this, it sounds like at the college level, uh, what are some of the ways in which Frankenstein is commonly misread? Well, let's see, the ways that it's commonly misread. <clears throat> That's a good question. I think it's probably Well, Adrian, I think, can probably speak to this. I don't know if anyone knows what they're getting into when they start reading it. Um, it's not, and I guess I can also say this from having taught it in like a gothic or grotesque art and literature class, it's not scary. Right. <laughs> you know? it's, a, it's a very tender story. Um, you know, it's, it's a story of loss. It's a story of ambition. It's a story of, you know, creating things and wondering about the limits of what humans can and should create. Um, so I think probably the way it can be mistaught um, is, you know, that it is, you know, some early kind of, you know, bastion of scientific progress. Mm -hmm. And it's not, <laughs> you know, it's, it really is kind of questioning, hey, should humans be doing this? And how are we responsible for what we create? And you know, that's why I think you have these really beautiful illusions. And if we can start teaching it in the classical high school classroom, the illusions to things like Paradise Lost, um, you know, where, where it, it you know, when the monster tells his story, when he learns to speak, which is also you know, 
one of the beautiful things about the story is what does it mean to be human? When does one become human? Does the acquiring of language separate us from something dead and something alive or something that has a soul? You know, so it's all questioning. What does it mean to have a soul? When are we actually alive? When are we just you know, pieces of flesh and bone stitched together? And when can we feel, when can we cry and when can we really be hurt, you know, to the core that we become evil? Um, I, you know, I don't ever hear it talked about in, you know, in those ways. I think you're right, Melissa. And I would love to see a teacher in a classical school teaching it uh, because, yeah, that I felt like it was very much a book about what it means to be a human being for sure very much. And how do we respond to things we're not, or things or people we're not comfortable with, people we're afraid of, or even how we respond to something that we've created. I, it was really good. I really enjoyed Frankenstein an awful lot. I do want to get over to, we're going to talk more about Frankenstein, but I want to um, get over to Dax and have him give some <clears throat> background on his circumstances in which uh, Frankenstein was developed and how their connections to Dracula, as well as uh, his background with uh, being an expert in Dracula and vampire mm -hmm. things. <laughs> sure. Um, well, two, two of you know my, my mother and um, my mom is very much into horror and <laughs> has always been. And she loves to tell people that she raised my brother and I on Rosemary's Baby and the Exorcist and that we turned out okay. <laughs> um, I actually have no recollection of watching those when I was a kid, but I do remember watching a lot of Dracula um, movies. I, the, the Frank Langella Dracula was always on in my house, which came out in 1979. Um, obviously, when Bram Stoker's Dracula came out in 92, we, we saw that one several times, um, and uh, it's, it's, it's still a favorite. So I grew up with that a lot. And then um, in the movie The Lost Boys, which came out in 1987, which is a kind of a pivotal year in my life for many reasons, but that movie kind of sparked the interest for me. And um, and then, and but it was just always in the background. And I had like one or two books. Somebody gave me, my brother gave me a book once on vampires because he knew I liked them and things like that. And, and then in, I think it was 2010, I um, did a lecture on music because I teach music sometimes and at the college level. And I did a lecture about music and and they asked me to come back in the fall and this is my own college says can you do another another lecture and I said well since it's October and Twilight had just come out maybe the movie the first movie had come out so why don't we do something about like how do we get from Dracula to Twilight you know with vampires and so I did that lecture and it was really popular and I did it three more times within the next year or so and then I started developing other lectures um and then People said, you should record these or make videos. And I said, well, I've gotten into podcasts recently. So I was like, maybe I'll do it as a podcast. And so I went to meet with a professor at Baylor who writes a book that's called The Vampire Book. You can find it in almost any bookstore. Um, and uh, turns out he has like this huge collection of books. He has 800 editions of Dracula in his collection, um, including a first edition. And he gave me just a bunch of, a bunch of books. So I went from having like two books to um, hundreds <laughs> over this course of a couple of years and, and doing my own podcast and, and doing a lot of research into Dracula and the, the novel, the historical character, um, all the films. I've written an article or two about the films um, and all the different actors that have played it. You know, Dracula is the most filmed um, character, or the second most filmed character of all time the most filmed non-human character. Sherlock Holmes is the most filmed character, uh, literary character in Dracula's number two. Wow. Um, and there is at least one movie with both of them in it <laughs> at some point in history. Now these aren't, I'm not saying they're all good movies. I mean, we're talking 200 plus appearances of both in film. Uh, so it, it, we're on screen. But um, so I got into kind of Dracula more over the past few years, doing a lot of research, talking to different people, um, I hosted a conference a couple of years ago for the 120th anniversary of the publishing of the novel, um, where Bram Stoker's great grandnephew was our, our guest speaker, and several other scholars from around Texas that were there. Um, and so I've just kind of been in that world now for for several years um, with with the novel and the films. 
Um, but uh, to talk a little bit about the, the the background, kind of how Frankenstein relates in a way. Um, so Melissa talked a little bit already about, you know, Mary Shelley and and writing Frankenstein during this 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 little contest that they had. Um, the 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 background of that contest is really interesting. In in 1815, um, April of 1815, uh, there was a volcano in Indonesia, Mount Tabora, that that erupted, and it was such a major eruption that it changed the climate of the entire planet for over a year. Um, and this affected uh, Europe uh, quite a bit. And it was called, um, 1816 was called the, the year without a summer because like the entire European landscape was basically covered in clouds and rain. And so this, this summer that, that Byron, uh, Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, um, Mary Shelley's cousin, I think, or or friend, I think it's her cousin, who was uh, another young girl, um, and then Byron's doctor, Dr. John Polidori, his personal doctor, spent the summer in this house in Lake Geneva in Switzerland, and it was the weather was so bad that they couldn't go outside, and that's kind of how they came up with this this contest. And there's several movies um, that, that that kind of cover this summer. There's one with a Gabriel Byrne as, as um, Byron and Julian Sands as Shelley. Uh, I just met Julian Sands recently at a at a convention, and we talked a little little bit about it. He was excited that somebody had seen that movie, and <laughs> we we talked a little bit about it. But um, it talks a little bit about how they how they did this. So part of that contest, besides um, Mary Shelley's writing Frankenstein, is that um, Byron himself started a just started a story. And we actually still call it today a fragment. It's a fragment of a vampire tale. It's, it wasn't complete. Um, his, so his doctor, Polidori, took that idea and he wrote his own story, published the same year as Frankenstein. It's about a 40-page um, short story called The Vampire um, with this lead character named Lord Riven, who is basically Byron. Um, he basically just turned Byron into a vampire. And it's really the first idea of this romantic vampire, um, this romantic style of Victorian vampire that we have in, in, in writing, especially in English. It's considered to be the first vampire story in English. Um, and both of those, uh, both Frankenstein and the vampire were turned into plays uh, very quickly, in, not just in England, but in France as well. There's a, I believe there's a French version of Frankenstein pretty soon after that, and the vampire also. And um, Byron had to fight quite a bit to convince people that he didn't write this short story because he says, this isn't my style. I didn't write this. Um, but uh, Byron has another poem, The Grimoire, that, that does talk about a vampire. And it's very interesting that this vampire dies while serving in a war in Greece, which is exactly how Byron died later. <laughs> um, so there, there's all this connection there. Um, and then Bram Stoker, in addition to being author, he was a theater manager. That's what he did. So he would have been quite familiar with these plays um, before he wrote this. So we went from Polidori's Vampire to the next English story being um, uh, a, a penny dreadful serial uh, called Varney the Vampire, which if you put all of the versions together, all of the stories, there's over 800 pages there of, of these penny dreadfuls. Um, and then Carmilla by Sheridan Lefamu, who was also an Irish author. Um, and then and then Dracula in 18, 1897. And so they have all of these kind of things that build up to it, all based on that summer that Polidori and Shelley, you know, began these these stories. Um, but he was since he was a theater manager, he worked for Henry Irving, the famous actor, um, and ran his theater uh, in, in London, that he would have been quite familiar with these plays. Um, but they are very different um, because Stoker spent seven years writing Dracula, and it's a heavily researched novel, um, as opposed to you know Shelley's, who came to you know, you know this idea that comes from a dream, and she wrote it very quickly. Stoker spent a very long time writing this, um, and there's tons and tons of books of notes and versions and all these different things. And there are other versions of Dracula. We've there's recently been discovered an Icelandic version. Um, we knew it existed because the 1901 version of Dracula has a, a, a new foreword by Stoker, and it says this is the foreword to the Icelandic version um, also, but the Icelandic version was just now translated into English after 100 years, and it's quite a different book. 
And the question is, did Stoker change it or did the Icelandic newspaper that ran it as a serial change it? Um, then it turns out there's also a Swedish version that was made around the same time and that possibly the Icelandic version may have been translated from the Swedish version. So there's all this really confusing kind of stuff with which version is which, but the basic novel never changed in English, at least. Just the, uh, the preface to the 1901 version makes this claim that wasn't in the original version, which is that this is a true story. Yeah, that was gonna be my, my next question, which ties to this question. First of all, are the stories true? And like, how true are monsters? But why did he have to do research? If it's mm -hmm. fiction. So Stoker's research involved a lot of things, and there's there's a couple of main sources. Um, I mean, the, the claim that it's true is obviously not, um, you know, I don't think anybody considers it that true. Although um, Stoker's great-grandnephew just wrote a uh, prequel to Dry Heagle. He wrote a sequel, and now he's written a prequel. Um, and in that prequel, I, I believe the idea is that Stoker was, um, he was very sick as a child. This is True. Till he was bedridden until the age of seven, um, and he had a miraculous recovery. And uh, this novel fictionalizes that I think it was a a vampire who cured him, and um, so he he knew that vampires were real. And so when he writes Dracula, it says a warning to everybody else. But um, but his research involved a couple of things. One was a trans a book about Transylvanian superstitions, written by uh, an English woman whose husband was a, a diplomat. And they had spent time in Transylvania, and she wrote about these superstitions. Um, he also used, um, found a, a one source that talked a little bit about uh, Dracula, um, the historic person. And this is one of the major uh, issues in Dracula scholarship is, um, did Bram Stoker know anything about Vlad the Impaler or not? Um, in 1970, there was a documentary in a book made called In Search of Dracula, where these two scholars connected the two, and it was the first time they'd really been connected. Um, after that, we've found his notes, and we know that according to his notes, all he all he ever wrote down about Vlad the Impaler is that he existed, that he was a prince in um, from Transylvania in, in Wallachia, and that he fought the Turks. And that's all Stoker knew. Mm -hmm. And the main thing, that Dracula means son of the devil. And that's in Bram Stoker's notes, and Dracula was originally called Count Wampir. <laughs> huh. for, for five and a half years of writing it, it was Count Wampir. And once he read this source, he, you can see in his notes, he went through and he crossed out Wampir in all of his notes and wrote the word Dracula. So really, as much as we know is that he liked the name and that he fought the Turks. So in the novel, the only mentioning of Vlad the Impaler at all is that this allusion to the fact that there was a Dracula who fought the Turks. Um, Dracula himself gives this little speech to Jonathan Harker that um, that his ancestors, you know, have been been in that land for hundreds of years, and they fought the Turks, and that's basically it. Um, so we know these these sources that he used and did research with. Um, we have notes of which vampire characteristics he pulled from some sources and which ones he made up himself, things like that. Um, and it's it's just a, it's a lot of a lot of notes and a lot of research. And those notes are, are here in America, in Philadelphia, at the Rosenbach Museum. You can go and see them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And, and they're, they're published also in a, in a book, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Melissa, do you want to add some thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to um, mention what Dax just did um, when I lived in Philadelphia for a while. And in the fall, they put um, at the Rosenbach Museum, which is a really neat collection. There were two brothers who had one collected furniture and the other collected books. And um, they put Bram Stoker's uh, notes on display. And I guess one of them I, that I remember seeing has the characteristics of a vampire that he's writing out. So you mm -hmm. actually see, you know, uh, you know, that he puts down, you know, when he's brainstorming, think that a vampire would not be able to see his own reflection in a mirror. Um, you know, it's it's just neat to see that there was this process. And then also, uh, Dax, I had a question for you when you were talking about the different iterations of Dracula, um, especially with the first 
that first story being published at the same time as Frankenstein, why do you think that there were so many, why do you think that people were drawn to Dracula as something to, you know, rewrite and rework um, mm -hmm. so often at that time and not, you know, not with Frankenstein? Well, I, you know, I, I think it's the fact that those, those stories that came in between so the vampire uh, in English, and, and it wasn't like this in other languages, vampire stories in other languages were not necessarily very romantic, but the English ones are all portrayed as these, you know, handsome men, and they're very romantic stories in, in many ways. Dracula itself, actually, film has done it a disservice. Um, the only real Dracula film that shows Dracula in all of its forms is the Bram Stoker, is the, is the Coppola version. Um, Dracula starts the, the book as an old man. <laughs> you know, he's hair all over the place and, and all these crazy things, long fingernails. And he gets younger as the book goes on in appearance. And that's usually not, I mean, Bella Lugosi didn't change. And most of the time they don't change. So there, there's not a lot of occurrences of that. But that's all of those stories. Um, Carmilla, even though it's a female vampire, is still very much a romance. Uh, um, the, so they, they were, I think, as opposed to Frankenstein's monster, who's not really the romantic type, uh, you know. Um, Except he, that he wants he a try, wife. He All tries he wants to, is a wife. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> true. <laughs> he tries to be, but uh, I don't think others don't see him that way. So it's, uh, but it, oh. also we have a good saying that, that you know, vampires, um, they change, they change with time and they're a reflection of um, like modern society's insecurities in a way um, and, and what, and what they're, what they would rather be or look for. Obviously um, eternal life is something that many people sometimes wish they could have, although I'm sure if they had it, they would regret it at some point, but. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. The idea of eternal life kind of, I think that theme is really in both of the books. Right, Certainly. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, in Frankenstein, it's there because he's wanting to create a life that can, that he can have immortality. Wasn't that one of the reasons he was experimenting? Yes, and it's um, it's something that the monster is, I think, upset about. You know, and it's one of the reasons that he wants to have a mate, and it's one of the things that he does lament Dax like you're saying it it ends up being a monstrosity that he he's not necessarily going to have a natural end mm -hmm. to things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. tell me what is monstrous about the, both of these characters and really Frankenstein is not the monster well or <laughs> is he <laughs> I mean if you haven't read Frankenstein yet the monster is just the mon he doesn't even have a name right yeah. So, so what's monstrous about these characters? How do we define monsters? It's interesting because Dracula definitely has a, a bigger murder count than Frankenstein's monster. I mean, really, I mean, the monster in Frankenstein, you know, he, he's not really as violent as, as people have made him out to be. I mean, um, unless you watch the, uh, the, what they call the, the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which came out after Bram Stoker's Dracula, you know, the, the, the the main disturbing scene in that is when he when he beheads you know the Victor Frankenstein's fiance. But there, there's not a lot as much you know Dracula himself though is constantly. I mean one of the very first scenes of where you understand that he is a vampire, where, where Harker Jonathan Harker understands he's a vampire is Dracula is bringing a baby back as food for his brides. Right. So that's I mean. That's the pretty monstrous route already. I, I and, think, uh, yeah. yeah, I think when, you know, if we're, we talk about what's monstrous, um, the thing with both of these, you know, neither of them are really horrific by today's standards. You know, it's not Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist, but what's monstrous, monstrous in my opinion is that both of these stories start with something very recognizable. And I think that's what's so unsettling about, about these stories is that you recognize the setting and it all is, you know, it 
all seems possible until it doesn't. And I think that's kind of what mm-hmm. great science fiction does. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes something as it is right now and then it spins it out to its most absurd and, you know, and thus monstrous end. Um, in, in Frankenstein's case, you know, the, the creation that Victor ends up with ends up bringing about all of the things that he's afraid of. And so, you know, maybe what's monstrous there is that we can't, you know, we can't engineer something that is going to help us escape from our own choices or our own responsibilities. Um, You know, because I guess that's kind of the commentary going on in Frankenstein. Um, Dax, you can talk about Dracula, but I think that's really the mon- the the monster in the stories, um, you know, are both. It's everything seems okay until it's all gone, you know, Harry Carey. You know, and, and Dracula, which one of the things that's very different is Dracula is definitely a supernatural story, as opposed to where Frankenstein is scientific in in many ways. Dracula, the the, the novel itself doesn't ever explain how he became a vampire that's that's not in the novel it's that's it's added in in movies you know the the whole first section of coppola's movie is not in the book yeah um so all of this the, the ways he becomes a vampire we just don't know um there's a little bit of a mention of dealing with magic at the scolomites which is this school in in the mountains of, of transylvania or whatever but there's this idea of supernatural you know this immortal being that can turn into a dog into a bat into mist into a wolf and changes age um you know and, and all these things is 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 quite you know scary and and the idea that this comes from you know london is this modern place in the novel and and they go to this you know way out very superstitious region of eastern europe and this thing comes from there to London. And that's kind of Dracula's whole thing. He wants to, you know, he's done everything he can. He's eaten all the people he can in Transylvania and they know about him. And, you know, they even warn, you know, Jonathan Harker very first thing in the book. So he's like, no, I need to go somewhere else. And I mean, but he does it in a very practical way. He knows, uh, at least he does it properly and he legally buys a, a castle in London and, and all these things or, a, or um, an abbey. And so it's this idea that there's this this kind of supernatural being, but there's there's other you know monstrous and horror things. You know, Adrian, you were mentioning where you were in the book, and not to spoil what happens next, but um, I, I will anyway. Uh, <laughs> what what the characters have to do after Lucy dies is is monstrous in itself and, mm-hmm. and a horror to them. They have to um, she's died once, now they have to go kill her again, um, and uh, it's one of my favorite. Uh, favorite scenes out of out of the Coppola movies after this has happened um Van Helsing is having uh, Anthony Hopkins is there and they're having dinner and um and Mina says did, did Lucy suffer and he says yeah 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 she suffered and he's like we we cut off her head we uh sticked her in the heart and then then she suffered a lot <laughs> it's just the way he says this, this delivery is kind of uh, amusing but it's this idea that they had to do all that um you know, and they they have to turn into the monsters in some way, um, but uh, but they had to do it because Lucy is a monster and she's mm-hmm. she's out there killing children. You know, once she once she dies, and there's it's all these ideas of things that the love story in Dracula that's in the movies is not in the book. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. The, the Dra- Dracula Mina love story is not in the book. Uh, um, she actually kind of detests what's happening to her. Um, even though he he is still um, trying to make her a, one of his new brides, but it's not the it's not the Gary Oldman Winona Ryder love story that we have in Coppola's film, or even as it's portrayed in in many many stories, uh, many Dracula films. It's it's uh, alluded to, but it's it's not a love story in any way in the original novel. Um, and and but Dracula is interesting because you know what happened is that. The book was never registered, um, never copyrighted in the United States, at least, and not really in England um, uh, very well. So it's been in the public domain since it was written. 
and anybody can do anything with it they want. Um, the only time it's ever been fought was with the movie Nosferatu. Bram Stoker's wife sued um, W.F. Murnau, and because it was basically Nosferatu, the movie is, is Dracula. So he, even though he changed the names of the setting, um, she still won. And it was ordered that the movie be destroyed, but two copies survived, and we still have Nosferatu in the world um, because of that. Uh, but that's the only time the copyright was ever really enforced. But it was never copyrighted outside of um, Europe, so it's it's in the, been in the public domain, which is why I have sixty different printed versions of Dracula, because <laughs> anybody can print it. We could print one and publish it today if we want. It's there's no copyright. So interesting. Trey, do you have any questions? Well, I've just really enjoyed listening in on the conversation here. And Dax, you mentioned something earlier in your comments about how Dracula was written as a warning. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's a key there because that word monster, that's what it means. A monster is a warning. And so we could think about any story that has a monster in it. And of course, the question becomes is, okay, well, what then is the warning, right? What is this story trying to warn us about? And I'm reminded of, you know, a, a monster that goes to a pretty early story uh, within Beowulf. You have Grendel the monster. And there's an interesting word there that's used to describe Grendel as a, as a mirkastapa. In other words, this, uh, this person who kind of walks the border between the world of monsters and the world of men, mm -hmm. or the world of light and the, the world of shadows. And... You know, one can one can only imagine what would happen to you if you drew close to that border, and even if you crossed over it. Uh, some translations of that word is someone who crosses the border, goes back and forth over this border. And of course, when we think about um, fairy tales, when we think about that that border that sort of um, delineates the the village and the the dark wood, right? I mean, we can all see it in our mind's eye because even just looking at it, it it clearly um, you know, the darkness of the wood um, sort of is a warning in and of itself. And yet we populate the wood with monsters. Uh, this is something that parents have done for a long time. Why? Because there's a warning there. And so I just wonder if maybe we could think about the idea of warning. And what do you think the warning is? Um, I'm sure there are multiple warnings within Frankenstein. And what is the, the warning for us within Dracula? Trey, I think this can go back to your earlier question about some of the ways in which these stories can be um, mistaught um, or not um, not properly thought about if if we're having them in a in a classroom. Um, yes, there are these warnings about you know wandering too far outside of your community and wandering too far outside of your purpose as a human. You know, humans are. You know, this is what humans do. This is what humans do not do. But I thought of something, one way that I have seen Frankenstein taught and Dracula is this idea of the other, you know, really popular way of taking a story and deciding that whatever, you know, monstrous, you know, protagonist there is, um, we're going to kind of make that person you know, the, the hero and the other. And then we start needing to, figure out why everybody was so terrible to Frankenstein. You know, everybody just needed to be nice to him and everybody was afraid of him because he was different. Um, you know, and it's not just because he was different. Like there were some definite markers that something was not okay with this creation, you know? Um, so um, anyway, I just wanted to, to note that. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And, and Dax, I, I want to let you jump in here. But uh, yeah, the, <clears throat> it seems to me that, and I, I'm open for conversation on this, but I feel like a very uh, common way of misteaching Frankenstein is for the teacher to try to persuade the students to think that if they were Victor, they would have loved the, the monster, right? Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that's just missing the point. But I'm I'm happy to to have a dialogue about it, Dax. So I, you know when when Bram Stoker kind of mentioned this as a, this idea of him saying the Dracula is a warning is with this this fictional idea was that it, it was an, an actual warning against vampires existing, you know that this this happened and 
Um, we know, some of the other things that we know about, you know, between the by the time the 1901 version came out, when he wrote this, this second preface, you know, the, the Jack the Ripper murders had occurred. Um, he had been in America after um, Stoker came to America in the 1890s while he was writing Dracula and also encountered news articles about um, Mercy Brown, who is, which is a very famous American vampire story. Um, there was a, this vampire craze in, in New England in the late 1800s, early up to 1900. Um, which was basically a bunch of tuberculosis cases that were just misunderstood. But Mercy Brown made the news because her um, sister and her mother died of tuberculosis. Her brother got tuberculosis. She died from it. And then her she was dug up. Her heart was burned and the ashes were fed to her brother as, a, as in a tea. And then, of course, he died from tuberculosis also. Oh, my goodness. But, um, this is a very common thing that occurred in... Um, especially in Europe, I mean, most of our most vampire folklore is based on two things: a misunderstanding of disease, and then a misunderstanding of decomposition, um, and then superstition. Uh, so, but this was happening even here in America. Mercy Brown uh, was in Rhode Island, and her grave is a very popular Halloween thing to visit. Um, but Stoker saw these articles when he was in America. She died in 1892, and he was visiting. So. He he knew that people had were still believing these things in various places, right? And uh, um, so he kind of you know sets this up as you know I think it's partly a warning to those who think it's real that it could be real, but also a warning to not um, believe in superstition, you know, uh, not to let superstition over overtake modern thought um, in, in a way, but. Uh, you know, and also just against against evil. Dracula is an evil character. And now, again, he's not always portrayed that way in, in movies. You know, Gary Oldman's version of Dracula is, very, is a very sympathetic character because of all the backstory about his wife dying and all, all this stuff. Um, but it's, uh, it's not how it's usually portrayed in the novel. It's very different. Um, and he's, it's, he's an evil that they have to um, these these good Christian men have to defeat this evil, um, you know the, the 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 devil basically incarnate. Um, yeah. So it's this warning of real evil in the in the world. Whether um, you know you could take the supernatural parts out and and he's just a, a murderer, you know, like Jack the Ripper, obviously that has to be stopped, um, mm. you know, by the by the good. So it's a it's a real good versus evil basic story. It's just the the, the the films the films always kind of misconstrue that I, I think the uh, so he didn't uh, stab the cross until it bled <laughs> no the, no the Coppola version adds in again the whole backstory they're taking the Vlad the Impaler stories and combining them um, Coppola does that that quite a bit the the most uh, for those who are interested in films the of all the versions of Dracula the one that's the most faithful to the novel is uh, BBC version from the 1970s starring Louis Jordan. It was a TV TV movie. Um, and that one follows the novel, still not completely, but the most of any other version. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Well, that doesn't surprise me. BBC does a pretty good job on well, a lot of... They, they did another one, though, in the 90s, which is not good. So. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think the most faithful version of um, of Frankenstein is the, what started... Uh, Gene Wilder, right? <laughs> there you go. That's right. And and my favorite Dracula is Dracula Dead and Loving It, which is Mel Brooks and Leslie <laughs> Nielsen. So, what's it called? Dracula Dead and Loving It. Leslie Nielsen is Dracula. It's great. Oh my! He, we need it, to have a double feature. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They're both Mel Brooks movies. So, but made but made the Leslie Nielsen encapsulates all the different Dracula films <laughs> because it was made after Coppola, so he. There are times where he's channeling Bela Lugosi and times where he's doing Gary Oldman and all these different things. And it's just a, um, it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great movie. So it sounds like the Mel Gibson version would be more enjoyed if you've watched some of the other versions first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mel Brooks, not, not Mel Gibson. That's oh, a, Mel, a, I meant no. Mel Brooks. That'd be a, totally another movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah sorry. I, yeah, I did meet, 
I wrote down yeah. Mel Brooks when you said it. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about teachers in high school and college, like teaching these books since we're a classical ed podcast. Would you recommend that high schoolers read these books? We do know that some classical schools and public schools are reading Frankenstein. Um, but what about Dracula? Um, what ages would you mm -hmm. suggest for these? And uh, Dax, how old were you when you read Dracula? So I read an abridged like children's version of Dracula probably when I was about 12 and I was um, uh, just listening to another interview I did recently where um, I think the, the version that I read I don't even think was in epistolary form I think it was like a children's narrative version of Dracula um, and uh, so I read that one when I was 12. I didn't read the full novel again until um Maybe like ten years ago, actually, when I when I read it again, um, my my version of Dracula that I've had my whole mm -hmm. life is a leather bound version that has Frankenstein and Dracula in one in one book. Mm -hmm. um, Frankenstein I was supposed to read in eleventh grade, and I uh, um, wasn't much of a reader back then, so I I I I got around it, but <laughs> but that's <laughs> but that's when it was assigned um, for me. Uh, I have a 10th grader this year, and she's going to be reading Dracula in the spring, I know. so. And she goes to uh, a classical and that, and school. That's a classical yeah. school. Yeah. But Dracula in, in schools, I've never seen, um, in college I have, obviously, um, but in, in schools. But I think, I think you know, 11th or 12th grade is probably a good age for Dracula. I mean, it, it does, <clears throat> we've talked a little bit, and you've talked about how some of it seems to be pretty scary still. It is, yeah. Um, well, you know, let's for, talk about that for a minute, because before we can maybe pinpoint who and when people should be reading this, maybe we need to make a defense for why they should be read at all. Mm -hmm. um, especially, I can imagine someone who is, let's say, a concerned parent thinking, well, you know, why do we need to be bringing these things into our imagination? Um, you know, this idea of horror uh, means to you know, make you shudder or to make your hair stand up, you know, to, to give you goose flesh, as some people say, you know, is that good for us? And, and if so, why? Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, a solid argument for having Frankenstein in the classroom, you know, even in, you know, probably ninth grade, um, it's part of the great conversation. You know, it's, it's other title is the modern Prometheus. And, you know, in classical education, you know, we're, we're teaching them the myths at very early age, Greek, Roman, Norse myths. And so, um, you know, I think it's a very natural way to, you know, probably by the time they're in ninth grade, maybe they have encountered the myth of Prometheus a few times, hopefully. And at that point, they're able to say, okay, what's going on here? How is this called the modern Prometheus. What does it mean to be modern? Because they've probably gone through that cycle of, you know, maybe modern times, you know, the ancient medieval and modern times. So how is this modern? Who's the Prometheus? You know, what are what's the punishment? You know, and making those, um, those parallels. Um, you know, but then there's also, they have the allusions to Adam and Eve. And so they, if they've been re reading Bible, at least Milton's Milton's Adam and Eve, and then that introduces them to you know the crossover between types of texts. We have this epistolary novel; it's telling a story. Um, she's brought in all of this poetry. Why did she do that? What, is it, was it just because she loved those poems? Did she have particular um, you know access to those poems? I mean, she was hanging out with a bunch of poets, um, you know. But what? I mean, it's rich. You know, it is just part of the great conversation. So I think. For sure, it needs to be in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I think um, you know Dracula is is, is an interesting one. I, it's, it's it's best quality is probably that it is this um, telling of of the big fight between good and evil, and the good actually does prevail in the end. Um, sorry, spoiler. <laughs> Dracula doesn't kill everybody; just a lot of people. Um, so it's this idea that. Um, you know, good good can triumph over over evil, um, and also, I mean, it, even just for the the basic fact that it, these two books together make up the two greatest examples of Gothic, you mm. know, literature and 
just even for historical value, it's it's um, quite an important work. It's this year marks the 125th anniversary of of its publishing, um, and again, it's such a you know, Dra Dracula is such an important part of the uh, still of um, popular culture and just all culture so much that there are a lot of places where they even just call vampires Dracula. <laughs> all vampires, all all soft. You know, I'm I'm from. Tennessee, all soft drinks are Coke, and uh, <laughs> in that in that way, all vampires are Dracula, um, right? Wh whether they are or not, or they follow that at all. Um, so it's such an important part that I think I think sometimes going to the source to find out what that really is can be beneficial because again, if you're basing it solely on movies, and and right now I've, I've always had this theory that every generation has a has a Dracula on film. Mm. You know, whether it was Bela Lugosi, and then it was Christopher Lee, and then it was, you know, maybe Frank Langella, then it was Gary Oldman. This generation hasn't really had one yet. They've tried. They've tried a few. Um, but the, like the Netflix series is the most recent one, the Netflix Dracula. And um, it takes so many liberties with with a lot of things. The The first episode is great. The second episode is okay. And the third episode is just weird. And it's, <laughs> um, it's but, but it's... Uh, but he does a good job. The, the actor does a good job, but it's something that um, people have seen so many different versions of to get the real story at some point in their life is a, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and I think yeah. maybe just to um, tack onto that, Dax, you mentioned this kind of, um, you know, synecdoche of Dracula is, you know, always the vampire. And we will refer to Frankenstein as, you know, any given monster. Everybody generally knows what these things are and so i think for young people um to to know actually the the source because they're going to encounter references to frankenstein and dracula from very very early ages i mean they're going to eat the cereal mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. but to be able to know you know what the actual story is that also gives them the opportunity to make their own connections as they go along as they you know, I mean, there are, we've only talked about a couple of the texts that are referenced in Frankenstein. There are a lot, you know, and that's a joy, at, at least, you know, for me, that was a real, um, I guess, key uh, to really enjoying literature um, is finding those little, you know, Easter eggs when you had learned a text and seeing where they popped up in other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think we could definitely make a very strong argument concerning, you know, a need to pass on a a common knowledge and a, a shared culture. And of course, you know, we, we ought not forget that there's that that warning to pass on as well. And we all know from experience that uh, cautionary tales usually don't work, but they're good to reflect back on and and probably lead you to repentance. Like you say, okay, I see what I've fallen into or what our society has fallen into. And I have to say, in terms of Frankenstein, I haven't really thought through this related to uh, Dracula yet, but, you know, if if young people are not equipped with the story, then they might miss some of the warnings that are going on right in front of them, some of the monstrosities that our society is promoting. Yeah. Um, if you don't think people aren't interested in tacking on a variety of different body parts onto themselves and creating them, forming themselves in whatever image they think they can fashion themselves in, then you, you just haven't read any of the recent headlines. And so, you know, here we have a story that um, continue to warns us. Uh, and, and that way, you know, we need to pass it on. Yeah. Um, I want to kick it back over to, to Adrian here, but at some point, Adrian, don't let me forget, I want to share a story about how Victor Frankenstein and Thomas Aquinas are are connected, so don't don't let me forget that. Okay, I'll try not to. Well, no, I think I think that's a great point. Um, the warning I felt, I really uh, Frankenstein really made me think a lot about internally myself, like how would I respond to somebody who looked like this? You know, none of us want to think that we would respond in that way you know and the whole time that he's he's that frank is the monster actually is planning to try to befriend this little family in the cottage 
you develop this really deep sympathy for him. And you're like, oh, if he came to my house, I would love him. <laughs> but then when they, when you see how he planned it out so well, he, you know, revealed himself to the blind grandfather and hoped that that could convince, the grandfather could convince the young uh, woman and man that he was a good person. And it still didn't work because when they saw him, they immediately wanted him out. But well, and that it, it made sorry, me cry. It made me cry. I felt sorry for him. I mean, it was clear that he was developing a very tender heart from learning what humans ought to be like. And then when he saw their unloving side, it made him more monstrous. It, it you know, and so it, it was very interesting to me. It how it gave me a lot of self reflection of how would I respond to somebody. Well, and I think it, it's important, though, there to not uh, not be too hard on the family um, because they're not, um, I don't think it's so much the way he looked that was horrifying, right? It's, I mean, he's not a human. He right. is, he is a, he is a thing that humans have created that is not the same as what God creates. And I think it's the family sensing that, you know, Interesting. it's not, it's not just that he was ugly. I, you know, I have a feeling that, you know, people would have seen ugly, marred, frightening looking people before. Right? I think that repulsion that humans feel towards the monster is this weird kind of something's not right here with this being. Interesting. You know, yeah. Yeah, but it, it really did make me self-reflect quite a bit. Yeah. And I felt pretty angry with his creator for not being merciful to him. I think Thomas Aquinas would have killed him. You want me to tell that story? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So um, having read uh, this book uh, in graduate school, you know, one is uh, tasked with the responsibility of then having something profound to say about it uh, in a paper. And so, you know, I was I was looking into it and doing a lot of digging and following a lot of footnotes, and I came across this story of, um, well, before I tell that, the first thing I stumbled upon is in the text of Frankenstein itself. And I'm going to try to remember this correctly. It may be in the university library, but I'm, I'm 99.9% .9 sure it was in his father's library. Victor was reading a smattering of different authors, uh, but one of the things he was reading at home uh, was the work of um, Albert the Great or St. Albertus Magnus, okay? Now, listeners may recall uh, that this uh, fellow was the teacher of Thomas Aquinas. And so this is how the Victor and, and, and Aquinas are related. So having both, let's say, for the sake of the argument, studied under this master, um, of course, they ended up going and ending up in two radically different places, we could say, because there is a legend that is connected to uh, to St. Albertus Magnus that he created, uh, some people call it a robot or a, an, a, some sort of automaton. Um, and in some versions, it's just the head and it could talk and it could actually give counsel and uh, give you all sorts of uh, information, um, prophecies, that sort of thing. And in other versions, he created a full a full body. Now, depending on your reading of, of these various stories, uh, some people think that it was made of metal, and other people think that it was some sort of combination of metal and flesh. So you see the interesting connection there with, with Frankenstein, of course. And I just how I just wonder, I don't know how familiar um uh Shelley was with with the story, but of course it's 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 like this little Easter egg that you were talking about that's right there in the story. Here you have this this brief mention of Victor reading um, Albertus Magnus. Well, as the legend goes, Thomas Aquinas came into his master's study, and this uh, this creature spoke to him, said, "Salve, salve," and he beat it with a stick and destroyed it. And I think in some versions he even burned it. <laughs> and uh, of course, um, if you want to know more about this, uh, there's a there's a professor over at Saint. Um, at May, let's see, uh, Mount Seri, 
let me get this correct, Mount St. Mary's University. His name is Christopher Andelay, I think. Anyway, he has a YouTube series. I think it's a three or four part series called St. Thomas Aquinas and the Robot. And if you're someone who enjoys following rabbit trails and footnotes uh, in this multi-part series, he just through his reading kind of gets down to what he thinks is sort of the, the origins of the story. And there's a text that was written sort of in defense of people who had been accused of magic um, where uh, uh, St. Albert's name is sort of cleared and that all of this uh, was in fact um, really just sort of these um, really early inventions of like robotics and that maybe through some um, use of wind and the sun warming the components inside, this robot was able to make a sound. Um, but of course, as legends go on, uh, a lot of people came to believe that he had in fact created this, this life of sorts, uh, not unlike a um, Victor's monster. Interesting. Yeah, there's a paper to be written there. Isn't there, mm -hmm. is there, is there, that's from a Norse myth? Doesn't somebody have a head that gives them yeah. wisdom? And I'd be interested to see, you know, somebody probably has already written about the, the head that gives wisdom to the leader. Um, I know I've seen that in a number of. I think there are several different, uh, interestingly, from, from cultures all over the world. Um, so there's something that, and this goes back to our conversation about monsters in general, um, something that both repels us and attracts us, this desire to, whether uh, it's have the ability to create life or to generate life or uh, master life. Um, and of course, you know, a lot of people have, have, have made the connection that, you know, the Jurassic Park story is just sort of a retelling of, of the Frankenstein story. <clears throat> well, I'm, we actually do need to end here because uh, I know Melissa and Dex both have to probably get back to work. <laughs> but um, I, how, Dex, you did, you mentioned you have a podcast. Mm -hmm. What is your podcast? It's called The Vampire Historian. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, the very first episode I ever did was about Dracula, but um, I'm hopefully going to be re-releasing that first episode because I don't, okay. I don't like it, but it's, 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 that's what it's about. And, um, well, and we will several others. But. We'll put a, a note in our show uh, sure. our show notes as well for sure. Um, well, thank you guys for having us on, and I mean coming on our show, and we mm -hmm. really think this was great. I think our listeners are going to love it. Thank you so much. Good this morning. was so much fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends... The final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven. <laughs>